Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 307, Two Readings of Mark, Popular or Esoteric, Part 3. When I decided to do a third episode in this series, initially I thought I'd do a chapter in a recent book by Richard Bauckham. But as I worked my way through it, I decided that there really wasn't a lot of interest in that chapter. He just kind of merrily reads 4th century ideas back into the 1st century, and he sort of imposes his thoughts about divine identity on every source that he comes across. And it seemed to me that he kind of lost his fight. He wasn't really trying to argue for it. He just is giving you his Bakamite take on this book, which if you want to know what the book really says, isn't all that helpful in my view. But then I revisited a chapter in a book called Jesus the Eternal Son, Answering Adoptionist Christology by the prolific Australian New Testament scholar, Dr. Michael F. Bird. He's a Bakamite as well, and he does tend to avoid analytic theology, perhaps the reason being that careful analysis tends to spoil the fun with Bakum's deep thoughts about identity. Interestingly, Dr. Bird has read my critique of Bakum, my published paper, which is also Trinity's podcast episode 13. In fact, he's the only person I've ever seen to cite that paper, but he's never responded to it or interacted with it in any way. I most recently interacted with Bauckham's divine identity theories back in episodes 213 and 214, in which I presented a then-recent talk by Dr. Bauckham. And what I concluded there was that Basically, he thinks of the Trinity as a single self with a single, unique personal identity. Now, he's got all this language about Jesus being included in the divine identity and uh, persons of the Trinity whose identity is in relation to one another and things like that. So he seems to suggest sometimes interpersonal relationships between the members of the Trinity. But I think really at the end of the day, he's a one-self Trinitarian who thinks that really ultimately it comes down to one I, one he. At least if you're going to make something coherent out of Bauckham's theology, I think that's probably what you'd need to come up with. Bird, I view very similarly. In a lot of his writing, he's spreading the, quote, divine Christology ideas of people like Bauckham and N.T. Wright. As I read him, Dr. Bird does not want to be what I call a Jesus-is-God apologist, someone who just straightforwardly confuses together and numerically identifies Jesus with God, like a great many popular apologists and lay people do. Thus, in one place in this book, he says, quote, It would be incorrect to infer that Mark conflates Jesus and God. Even so, it is reasonable to surmise that Jesus and God Modulate together under the designation kurios. Modulate together under the designation kurios. But let's stick to the first part. It would be incorrect to say that Mark conflates Jesus and God. In other words, take them to be one and the same. Why would that conflation be incorrect? Well, I mean, they can't be numerically one because in this book, they seem to simultaneously differ in a bunch of ways. Right There's a point where he's on the cross and Jesus feels like he's forsaken by God. Presumably God does not feel that he's been forsaken by God at that moment. There's a point where Jesus dies. Presumably God is still living that whole time because it's part of the Jewish concept of God that God is essentially immortal. God has a unique human son. Jesus doesn't have a unique human son and so on. There are a lot of simultaneous differences between God and Jesus that are presupposed in this book. Okay, but if they're not numerically identical, then they can't be the same God. If some A and B are the same God, that just means that A is a God, B is a God, and that A just is B. That's what it is to be the same God. Now, I think that Dr. Bird thinks that Jesus and God, that is the Father, are the same God, even though they're not the same, full stop. In other words, 
He thinks they can be the same God without being numerically identical to each other. Well, this is where he needs analytic theology then. I would recommend to him Podcast 271, Does Your Trinity Theory Require Relative Identity? It looks like the theory will just be incoherent, unless relative identity theory is true. I don't think it is. Most philosophers don't think it is. So I think as it stands, his views face some pretty serious coherence problems. Supposedly, Jesus and God are not just numerically identical with one another, which would require that they're always the same in every way. And yet, at the same time, they're the same God, which implies they're being numerically identical to one another. Of course, some Trinitarians would say that neither one is a God, because each is one-third of God. The only God is triune. The Father's not triune. The Son's not triune. So, you could say that neither is a God, but he seems to want to say that each one of them is a God, and moreover, that they're the same God, namely the God of Israel. So, there are some deep problems of coherence here for his view, but let me get on to the subject matter of this podcast. We last heard on this podcast from Dr. Bird in podcasts 128 through 130, and in those podcasts, I presented part of a kind of discussion, dialogue, debate between Dr. Bird and Dr. Bart Ehrman, which was held in 2016 at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Bird tells us in the intro to this book that he did the research for this book while he was preparing for this dialogue, and it just turned out to be so much research that it was more than an article worth, and so he wrote this focused, uh, short little book from that research. There are a lot of interesting things in the book, and I agree with a number of things that he says, although I do think it proceeds from some mistaken assumptions about what it calls adoptionism. In brief, in my view, it's a mistake to collapse together early, merely human Christologies with adoptionism. Those are two different, even if overlapping, lines of thought. In my view, the earliest Christology is human Christology, but it's not anything that should be called adoptionism. Dr. Bird's core Christological concerns come out towards the end of this short book. He thinks that for some reason or other, a merely human Jesus couldn't possibly save us. So he appeals to the claims of Athanasius and Irenaeus on this score, rather than saying anything about why we should think this is so. And I would just say, in brief, notice that this is not at all a New Testament teaching, that Jesus has to be divine, otherwise somehow the atonement wouldn't work. He also objects that adoptionism amounts to an unacceptable teaching that humans can earn salvation through good works. Of course, this soteriological thesis is not something really any present-day Christians defend, be they Trinitarian or Unitarian. Dr. Bird's academic specialty, or at least a main one of his specialties, is recent academic disputes about, quote, early high Christology. So he devotes a lot of time in this book to refuting work by Ehrman, Dunn, Pippard, and Kirk. But in this episode, I want to focus on a portion of this book towards the end in which he gives what I think is a quasi-Gnostic or esoteric reading of the gospel according to Mark. So in the portion of this book I'm talking about, Dr. Bird builds a case that there's a Christology of divine identity in the gospel according to Mark, and he cites four alleged facts as supporting his conclusion. The first is Markian kurios language for Jesus, that is, how Mark applies the term kurios, Lord, to Jesus and to God, it turns out. His second point is, he says, Jesus' divine prerogative in forgiving sins. Third, Jesus and theophanic episodes. In other words, episodes that resemble some of the theophanies, the supernatural appearances by God in the Old Testament. The fourth is, he says, the mark in Jesus' divine authority. Now, one thing I like about Dr. Bird's work is that he is feisty. Not only does he often reveal his over-the-top Aussie sense of humor, but he packs in the arguments and he packs in the references He's like an ultimate fighter who just comes out swinging and kicking constantly, you know, like he's going berserk. He writes in an assaulting manner. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, he's constantly arguing. That doesn't mean that the arguments are always very strong, but I do appreciate that he's arguing for his conclusion and not merely assuming it. 
I think he recognizes that to a lot of New Testament scholars, his views are extreme, and so they do need to be argued for. I agree. And by the way, Dr. Bird, if you should hear this, I think this would be a good debate topic. I think it would be really instructive for you and I to square off and just, you know, in the space of 90 minutes or so, present, in my case, why I say Mark teaches a human Christ. And then you could bring your case that no, Mark presents a divine Jesus. Dr. Bird loves to refer to this 21st century genre of early divine Christology scholarship. It's kind of a small cottage industry. It's a certain wing of biblical scholarship, and he knows all about it, and he likes to footnote it, refer to it. And unlike a few of the people in that literature, I don't think he appreciates that he is offering an interpretation of this gospel in which the author's main and most important message is something other than what he actually says. So he's actually committed to there being a surface thesis that Jesus is God's Christ, and also there being a deeper, only encoded and hinted at thesis, which is that Jesus is God in some sense, or that he's within the divine identity, etc. To me, making that point is a strong objection to this reading. I don't think there's that kind of tricky business in this book. I think that he thinks he's presenting the actual clear thesis of this gospel, clear because it's clearly implied. But this is part of what I'll challenge in this episode. It seems to me that his position really requires that there's both a surface message to Mark and a hidden message to Mark. When the Trinity's podcast returns... Dr. Bird's first point about the use of the word kurios, or Lord, in this book. Because this is Bakamite, you always have to ask yourself, wait, what's the conclusion we're arguing for exactly? How exactly are Jesus and God supposed to be related on this interpretation? Now about kurios language, use of the Greek term for Lord, he says, quote, In some cases, this language clearly refers to Israel's God as distinct from Jesus. Right. Elsewhere, it is ambiguous as to whether God or Jesus is the intended referent arguably so. And in some other instances, Jesus is described in such a way that he and the God of Israel both share the identity of the kurios. Now that last part, and he references Dr. Johansson here that we heard from last time, this last part I think is just pure confusion that's projected onto the text. There is no meaning of the Greek term kurios, where it refers simultaneously to God and to Jesus, implying or assuming that they're really the same Lord. Just look in a lexicon. What the lexicon will tell you is that there's basically four meanings in New Testament Greek for kurios. It can be a polite term of address, like sir. It can mean master or boss, like the Lord of a manor. It can be a title for Jesus, and it can be a title for God. There is no fifth meaning where it refers to Jesus and God as being the same Lord. It's just imagined. It's just hypothesized for theological purposes. Kurios is a title given to a person or a self. It's like the term boss or friend or king or wife. The hoped-for use where Lord refers to these two different selves is just that. And it's hard to see how an ambiguous term could even support a thesis that Jesus and God are the same Lord. Imagine there's a guy who refers to his wife as boss. Right? She tells him what to do. He says, yes, boss. Also, when he's at work, he refers to his manager at work as boss. Manager tells him something to do. He says, yes, boss. 
Now, imagine somebody coming along and seeing this pattern of using the word boss ambiguously for the wife or for the manager, and someone says, you know, this guy, he thinks his manager and his wife are the same boss. What? I mean, how could the guy be that confused, right? We're all familiar with this phenomenon of ambiguous names and titles, and he knows that he's using the word boss with two different reference. Now, there could be a circumstance where it's unclear which he means. You know, they're at the company picnic, and the boss says, uh, get me a drink, and the wife says, get me a drink at the same time, and his head's kind of spinning around back and forth, and he says, yes, boss. Now, he could be talking to the wife, he could be talking to the manager, he could even, because he knows both are listening, be using one spoken sentence to mean two different things. He could, by that one sentence, be saying yes to both the wife and to the manager. He's going to go grab two drinks and then deliver them. But the slang term boss is used for persons. It's not a term that you use for a pair of persons. Even if the two people he calls boss are standing side by side talking at the company picnic, he's not going to use the term boss to refer to the two of them together. Now, he might use it and people are wondering which one he means, but that's not the same thing. How confused would this husband have to be to think that the wife and the manager are the same boss? Okay, well, how confused would the author of this gospel have to be to think that the man Jesus and the God of Israel are the same Lord? No, he can see the ambiguity of the term. How do we know this? Well, because it's obvious is one answer, that ambiguity is obvious. Another answer is that other authors in the New Testament, like Luke, sometimes throw another word or two in there to specify which is meant. So some New Testament writers will talk about the Lord God as distinguished from the Lord Jesus. That's a way of helping people understand which Lord you have in mind. Dr. Bird makes a lot out of the scriptural quotation in Mark 1, verses 2 and 3, which is a composite of Malachi 3, 1, Exodus 23, verses 20 and 21, and Isaiah 40, verse 3. The first two texts from Malachi and Exodus involve God promising to send a messenger. Hmm, that seems appropriate because a Christ, a Messiah, is a kind of messenger from God. It's a human agent who's doing God's work, who's playing out this very special role that we find out about in this book. But the last text from Isaiah mentions the coming of God. So why would the author mash up these three prophecies and present them as sort of one prophecy? Well, his idea seems to be that Jesus is a special messenger, an agent of God, God's Messiah, which is the explicit and repeated and clear thesis of the whole book. Is this his way of hinting that Jesus is God? I don't think so. The only problem would be the text from Isaiah that mentions the coming of the Lord, and originally the Lord there is Yahweh in the Hebrew version. There are two ways you can take this, which don't involve the author throwing hints that Jesus is the God of Israel. One would just be, he thinks that there's a second meaning. Just like the prediction about Emmanuel in Matthew, Jesus is not that baby back in the time of Hezekiah. Jesus is somebody different. So, the author there thinks that there's multiple fulfillments of the same prophetic words. So, he can just think that, that this prediction of Isaiah was fulfilled by an action of God, but also now it's fulfilled by an action of this other Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Another way you could take it, and this might depend on how you read the rest of the book and if you agree with people like N.T. Wright that this is a theme of the New Testament Gospels, you might think that, no, the author here is saying, yes, that Jesus is an agent of God, as is in the first two texts, but also that God himself is coming to Israel through the man Jesus. Right, so it is God that's coming, but he's coming through another, through his human Messiah. Now, I can just hear some types, maybe not Dr. Bird, who has more dignity, but I can hear some people here screaming lest their favorite proof text be taken away. No, come on, you can't arbitrarily just come up with this God's working through an agent business. Come on, man, divine Christology. The prediction was about Yahweh coming, and now in Mark 1, it's presented as being fulfilled in Jesus. And so, Jesus is coming, but it's saying that Jesus is Yahweh. 
Oh, to the contrary, there is nothing arbitrary about understanding this to be God coming to Israel through the man Jesus. And you see this idea of God coming to his people through Jesus in the gospel according to Luke. We know it's a contemporary idea. We know it's an early Christian idea. So Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, is filled with the Spirit and prophesies in Luke 1, starting in verse 68. And he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. Notice he's speaking in the prophetic present. He's talking about something as if it's already been done, but he's actually talking about future events. How is the Lord God of Israel visiting his people? Is he becoming a man? Is he becoming incarnate? Is God uniting himself mysteriously to a complete human nature? No. He's raised up a powerful servant from the line of David, as, he says, was spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Then later on in chapter 7, Jesus raises a dead young man back to life. In 7.15, Luke writes, The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Now, their idea is not that God has become a man, or that he's become, quote, human, but rather, God has visited his people by sending this great prophet, Jesus. Of course, being the Messiah, he's more than a mere prophet, but he's at least that. So there are two easy ways to understand what the author of the Gospel according to Mark is doing, citing this ancient prediction about the Lord coming, make straight the paths of the Lord. Either he understands Lord in a new sense, so it's the Lord Messiah, or it's talking about Lord in the old sense, but it's the Lord God acting through the main subject of this book, his Christ. Dr. Bird makes a lot out of the passage in Mark 12, where Jesus stumps them. How can David call this other one my Lord? Somehow he infers pre-existence out of this. I don't see that at all. Somehow he infers that this can't just be messianic. And I would say, well, sure it can. This is the Messiah being elevated after his resurrection. That's how New Testament authors take this prediction in Psalm 110.1. Dr. Bird concludes, and I think this is leaping way beyond what the text actually says, that here the author is redefining monotheism in light of Jesus' person and work. He writes, Mark's monotheism will not countenance ditheism or subordinationism, yet Jesus is placed in the orbit of Israel's kurios, in the orbit, sure, like the Messiah is, Viewed this way, it is better to regard Mark's double identification of God and Jesus as kurios with the accumulated ambiguity about the identity of Israel's kurios that has developed since Mark 1, 2, and 3. Mark's narrative defines the way of the kurios as the way of Jesus Christ, so that there is one kurios who is split between two distinct persons of God and Jesus. Both share this name and title. I mean, there is no double use. There is no plural referring term use of kurios like that. It's just purely imagined. There is no double identification. In fact, double identification is just confused in principle. You can't identify one thing as God and also identify a different thing as God. If those two things are identical to God, then they'll be identical to each other because numerical identity is a transitive relation. Right? If A is bigger than B and B is bigger than C then A is bigger than C, because bigger than is transitive. Just so, if A is equal to B and B is equal to C, then A is equal to C, because numerical identity is also transitive. Right. So if the Father is God and the Son is God, and we're talking about numerical identity, then it just logically follows that the Father is the Son. But yeah, this is, in my view, learned confusion. And what on earth are we supposed to make of his talk about the kurios who is split between two distinct persons of God and Jesus? One kurios who? So there's one Lord, the one Lord God, presumably, who, in other words, this is a single person, is split between two distinct persons. So the triune God is a person, but there are also three divine persons, and these are parts of God? 
Does he think that this is Trinitarian orthodoxy? I wonder. We're attributing this to Mark? A little later he writes, If we ask who the kurios of the Gospel of Mark is, the paradoxical answer is God and Jesus. Again, I say this is just learned confusion, and we should reject it as an uncharitable misreading of this book, just as we'd reject a reading on which Peter and John are supposed to be the same person, or a reading on which Mary Magdalene is supposed to be the same person as the mother of Jesus. How do we know that these are not the same Mary, that is, the same woman? There are two ways that we know. First, there are obvious simultaneous differences between them. If there are simultaneous differences, then unless the author is horribly confused, they can't be one and the same lady. Second, they're mentioned sometimes together, like one in addition to the other. You wouldn't mention the same woman by two different names when listing those who were there. Let's say one of Dr. Bird's students was talking about some university event. He said, yeah, Dr. Bird was there, but you know, also Michael F. Bird was there. Wait, hold on, mate. Those are the same person. Listing them as if they were multiple attendees seems to reflect the assumption that they're two different men, but no, they're the same man. Okay, so look at God and Jesus in this book. Sometimes they're mentioned together, one in addition to the other. And that presupposes that they're not the same self, they're not the same being, they're not the same God, they're not the same Lord, they're not the same anything. One's the one true God and one's a man. First verse of the book, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of who? God. Presumably those are two different ones then, Jesus and God, because no one's their own son. Mark 10.18, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. The author's presupposing that Jesus and God are two different ones there. Jesus isn't saying, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for me. Or why do you call me good? Only I am good. No. Why do you call me good? No one's good other than somebody else. God alone. That presupposes that Jesus and God are two. Mark 11.22, Jesus says to them, Have faith in God. That's not the same thing as saying, have faith in me, is it? In John, he says, you trust in God, trust also in me. That's a different thing to say, isn't it? Jesus talks about the one God in Mark 12. He's talking about somebody else. A distinct person, sure, but a distinct being. Jesus cries out on the cross in Mark 15, 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not talking to himself, right? So in this book, yes, Jesus and the God of Israel are both referred to by the term Lord, although arguably not at the same time, but they're just as clearly distinct characters in the narrative as are the two Marys, or as are Peter and John. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Jesus's quote, divine prerogative in forgiving sins. So like many later readers, Dr. Bird seems to think that the author is communicating that Jesus is God because Jesus does have the right to forgive sins. And surely only God can forgive sins. Well, to that I would say, first of all, don't call me surely. And second of all, it's not true that in principle only God can forgive sins, even if it is a divine prerogative to forgive sins. Now, the main point to see here is that the author doesn't do anything to suggest that the reader should agree with Jesus's critics here that only God can forgive sins. In fact, Jesus doesn't congratulate them on good basic Jewish theology. Well, you're right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Aha, but you're starting to catch the point here. 
See, the thing is, I'm God. No, he doesn't do that. He criticizes them. He says, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Right, so he thinks they're off by wondering that. And that is because it's not true that in principle only God can forgive sins. And to prove this, he heals a guy. Now, when someone says that only God can forgive sins, and by the way, I'm really talking about forgiving, like performing the action of forgiveness, not just announcing that somebody else has forgiven you or sort of serving as an intermediary so that someone else can forgive you. I mean like performing the act of forgiveness. But if somebody says it's impossible for anyone other than God to do that, you should be very skeptical of impossibility claims like that because it doesn't seem to imply any contradiction that someone else should forgive on behalf of God. In fact, humans can do this sort of thing. So all the more so an omnipotent and omniscient being would be able to do this. That is, have another one forgive on his behalf. Suppose Dr. Bird comes over to the U.S. from Australia and, I don't know, his credit card goes bad or something, and I lend him $1,000. For whatever reason, he doesn't pay me back. So I have a friend who happens to be going to Australia, and I deputize this guy. I say, hey, I want you to go to Bird and put the squeeze on him. I want you to get my 1000 bucks. However, if Dr. Bird begs and pleads and gets on his knees and says, I'm really sorry, I just can't afford this right now, If he's humble and repentant, I tell my friend, you can forgive the debt on the spot. And if you forgive his debt, that's my forgiving his debt. I'm empowering you as my agent to forgive his debt if he responds in that humble manner. And if he doesn't say, give me the thousand bucks right now, you rat. That person's not pronouncing my forgiveness. That person is able to enact my forgiveness Now, in a human case, it's kind of a weird situation, right? I might bump into Bird uh, a week from when I sent this person and say, hey, have I forgiven your debt or not? Because I don't know what my agent did. Of course, that wouldn't apply to God. Now, one thing that's interesting is that because in this book, sometimes the bad guys say true things, as we talked about two episodes ago, I do think that it's always been the case that a few readers with confused notions about Jesus and God have misread this episode, and they think that the point of it is that only God can forgive and Jesus can forgive, therefore Jesus is God. But that's not his point. And what's so interesting is that when Matthew reproduces this scene in his gospel, he's aware of this misunderstanding. And so he adds a crowd reaction sentence, which says this, this is Matthew 9, 8, quote, when the crowds saw it, the miraculous healing, They were filled with awe, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to human beings. Right, so Matthew adds in a reaction by the crowd who gets it. Jesus' point here is not that he's God, but rather that he's been authorized to forgive sins on God's behalf. The assumption that in principle only God can forgive sins, you know, like directly on his own, that is no more plausible than the claim that in principle only God on his own can heal. So you can't heal people, only God can do that. Well, but what if God does it through me? Jesus explodes that absurd claim by his action. He heals a guy, and it's not just Jesus healing him, it's God healing the guy through Jesus. And it's just as absurd to claim that only God can forgive, like on his own, No, to the contrary, just like you and me, God can forgive through human agency. Now, is this amazing? In one sense, yes, it is amazing that he would use humans to do such an important thing. But a student of the New Testament will notice that Jesus teaches the apostles that they too have this power. It happens in John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. This is an appearance of the risen Jesus. It says, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So the point of this episode is not only God can forgive sins, Jesus forgives sins, therefore Jesus is God. To the contrary, we should reason like this. Jesus forgave sins. Jesus is someone other than God, and so it's false that only God can forgive sins. The idea that only God can forgive sins is a reflection of lack of faith, lack of faith in the way that God moves through human beings, as explained in Scripture. Again, it's no more plausible that only God can forgive than only God can heal. God can forgive by the agency of another. God very often does heal through the agency of another, like Jesus or Peter or Paul. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Bird's thoughts about Jesus and theophanic episodes. About theophanic episodes in this gospel, Dr. Bird mentions the episodes in chapters 4 and 6 where Jesus calms the storm and when he walks on the water. He says that the descriptions here hark back to scriptural images for Yahweh's authority over the sea. So there are descriptions of God that present him as authoritative over the sea, Psalm 107. And they ask, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Context, context, context. Who is this guy, according to this book? Hmm, what could this author be saying? Again, two episodes ago, we saw that he just hammers the message that Jesus is God's Christ. That is who this is, that the wind and sea obey him. A special agent of God empowered by God. There's no discussion here of God as sovereign over water, or God as sovereign over nature, and then, hey, this guy's sovereign over nature, he must be God. That doesn't occur in this book. Again, Jesus comes to them walking on the water in chapter 6. Dr. Bird here brings up the description in Job 9.8 of God, who alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Yahweh in Psalm 77, passing through the waters ahead of Israel in the Exodus. And even Yahweh passing by Moses, who is hid in the cleft of the rock in Exodus 33. Jesus says, It is me. Ego me, is that a divine name? Jesus exhorts them, do not be afraid. Sometimes in the Old Testament, people are urged to not be afraid of God. Then he quotes another scholar. He writes, Marcus rightly surmises that the overwhelming impact of our narrative is an impression of divinity. Well, just look at this incident in the book. In the narrative, he just gets into the boat. There is no comment by the narrator There is no conversation by the good guys or indeed by the bad guys drawing consequences from this. Man, this guy must be divine, because otherwise, how could he walk on water? They're Jews. They have a concept of miracles. They know all about the stories in the Old Testament where prophets, who are mere men, do miraculous things through the spirit or power of God. Then there's the transfiguration scene in Mark 9 which he claims is a divine disclosure of Jesus' heavenly identity, built largely around the biblical theophany tradition. Right, so is this saying that Jesus is God? Well, on the face of it, obviously not, because God is somebody else in this story. There comes a voice from the cloud, This is my son, the beloved, listen to him. Who's that talking? God. So why shouldn't we agree with some other scholars who say that this scene is a preview of Jesus' resurrection or of his parousia, in other words, of his future glorious state? All in all, I would say that these so-called theophanic episodes really don't add anything significant to the case that the Jesus of this book is divine in the way that the one God is divine. Rather, 
they're pretty easily taken as just consistent with the reading on which Jesus is God's Christ, which is what the book explicitly says. This sort of free associating search for similarities to previous literary episodes really seems to be wheel spinning here. And interestingly, later in the chapter, Dr. Bird describes what he calls parallelomania, where you're really not illuminating the text that you're discussing. You're just grasping at these vaguely similar earlier episodes that actually don't do anything to explain what's going on in the text at hand. He writes, such parallelism becomes deeply problematic when the internal coherence and cumulative weight of Mark's narrative construction of Jesus's identity, that Jesus is God's Christ, is nonchalantly set aside when an interpreter finds a parallel text and proceeds to argue to the effect that Mark's depiction of Jesus as A is really the same as the description of figure B in a parallel text. Even worse, there can be near-endless multiplications of parallels with the result that the narration of the Mark and Jesus doing or saying A becomes a debate over parallels B, C, D, or E. To give an example, the quote meaning of Mark 6, 45-52, where Jesus walks on the water and calms the storm, cannot be resolved simply by piling up parallel texts like those which describe Yahweh with authority over the sea and stilling the storm. And where Yahweh passes by Moses, or where Yahweh leads Israel through the sea by the hand of Moses and Aaron, or where Yahweh places the king in authority over the rivers. How does one adjudicate between these options as the primary parallel for accounting for Mark's presentation of Jesus? As a general rule, such parallel texts have interpretive value when the author has already cued the reader to expect a specific range of texts through citation, allusion, and echo, when the parallel texts fill in missing gaps in the narrative, when the parallel text enhances the overall coherence and main thrust of the story, or when the implied reader is expected to be familiar with the given text or tradition. Parallel texts create endless possibilities, but these possibilities are not probabilities, and mere possibilities do not explain the contours of the Markan story utility of the parallels must be assessed by how they enhance the internal consistency and narrative momentum of the Mark narrative. Without such a criterion, the parallels do little more than become a hermeneutical white noise and constitute a near-endless list of possible associations that some readers might have made with some text in some location. Little is gained from this enterprise. Okay, well, the clear and explicit mark and narrative is that Jesus is God's Christ. And I don't think it's been shown that there's also this hidden meaning that Jesus is God, or that he belongs to the divine identity, or something that's a stand-in for later Trinitarian ideas. And I don't think it's reasonable to suppose that the reader would say, Aha, wait a second, Yahweh is the one who walks on water. I don't think that's true. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Markin Jesus' divine authority. So Dr. Bird's fourth heading is the Mark and Jesus's divine authority. He starts off the section by saying this, coming to the fourth point, the Mark and Jesus has a unique and unmediated sense of divine authority. We've already seen that Jesus possesses divine authority to forgive sins, Mark 2:10, authority over the Sabbath, Mark 2:28, and authority over the wind and sea, Mark 4:39, all of which indicate something more than prophetic authority. Well, let me pause there. Maybe that is all more than an ordinary prophetic authority. The question is, is that authority that God could give to a human being? 
And the obvious answer is yes. Why couldn't an omnipotent being give those sorts of authority to a man? In fact, that is what the reader is actually supposed to think in this book. Jesus is God's Christ, his anointed one. Anointing was an ancient ceremony that would sort of commission a king and initiate his reign. The meaning is that God has called Jesus to this ministry and empowered him and equipped him to do it. So there is a unique authority here, for sure, but that it's unmediated is wildly implausible because Jesus is God's Christ. To be a Christ, an anointed one, is to be an agent empowered by God. So his authority is not unmediated. It's God giving him these authorities and these powers. He points out that Jesus in Mark 13, 31 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Right, because as Jesus tells us in the fourth gospel, he's a man who has told you the truth that he heard from God. His message comes from God, and as God's word, his message is not going to pass away. That doesn't mean that he's God, but that means that his message is from God. More remarkable is how Dr. Bird deals with Jesus' confessed ignorance of the day and hour of his future return. So far from this counting against Jesus being divine in the one way that God is divine, because he's not omniscient, he has a way of looking at this that tries to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. In Mark thirteen thirty-two, Jesus says, But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Dr. Bird comments, The saying is remarkable for its insistence on the limitation of Jesus' humanity in not knowing the divine moment assigned for the end. Limitation of Jesus' humanity. Another ambiguous phrase, it could mean that it was his humanity which was ignorant but not his divine nature, which is not Mark's meaning. Or it could mean that Jesus, being a man, has limits on his knowledge. Sure, all human beings do. So he's not God, right? Dr. Bird continues, The saying caused mind-melting problems for later theologians of the church, and even scribes succumbed to the temptation to excise the phrase, nor the son, from the Matthew parallel. And Luke omits the verse entirely. What is interesting for our purposes is that the saying places Jesus as a part of a heavenly council with God and the angels. What? I mean, the angels are presupposed to be God's confidants, or at least some of them are, if there's a divine council, as is portrayed many places in the Old Testament. And Jesus, too, is one of God's confidants. This is his beloved son. Jesus has unique knowledge of God. God has shared quite a lot of revelation with Jesus that he's never shared with anybody else. Does it actually place Jesus as part of a heavenly council? I don't think so. It just presupposes that Jesus and God are close so that even he doesn't know this thing. Dr. Bird says, the presupposition of this saying is that Jesus is a heavenly being like God and the angels. No, that's a gigantic leap, a heavenly being. He just needs to be someone who's close to God. Finally, Dr. Bird tries to get some Jesus's God juice out of the trial narrative. Here's the whole episode, starting in Mark 14, 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes were assembled. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many gave false testimony against him, and their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. But even on this point their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But he was silent and did not answer. Again the high priest asked him, 
Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? All of them condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! The guards also took him over and beat him. Let's just stop and make a really obvious point here. How on earth, in principle, could one get here the implication that Jesus is God or that he's divine in the way that the one God is divine or that he's the God of Israel? First of all, no one even accuses him of that, which if he was really implying that, one would expect somebody would pick up on it and say it was blasphemous, but that doesn't happen. Second of all, what the priest does ask him is if he's the Messiah, not the Blessed One, a euphemism for God, the Son of the Blessed One. And Jesus says, yep, that's me. And then he quotes prophecies about one called the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of the power, in other words, at the right hand of God and coming with the clouds of heaven. So who will return in power? Who's coming back? Not God, but this Messiah, also referred to as the Son of Man, an obvious reference to this figure in Daniel 7, who is brought into God's throne room and given power and dominion and authority, etc., which you see portrayed in the vision of Revelation 5. The assertion of Revelation, and indeed the rest of the New Testament, is that the raised and exalted Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophecy back in Daniel chapter 7. So Jesus is claiming to be that. Sometimes in recent literature, you see this one like a son of man, weirdly described as a divine figure. What is that supposed to mean? I mean, he's not supposed to be God. He's brought into the throne of God, awarded this great status by God. At most, he's going to be ruling with God or with an under God. Okay, so how do we take this passage, which throughout it clearly distinguishes Jesus from God, and never implies that Jesus is God, how do you try to get divine identity Christology out of it? Well, I'll tell you. Dr. Bird writes, We see something of Jesus' authority in the trial narrative where Jesus is described in such a way that he is destined to share God's throne in his post-resurrection state. And then he refers to the end of this passage. Throne sharing? Mm, Maybe. Seated at the right hand of the power is what it says. Seated on the same throne? I don't see why not. But that position, on the face of it, is something God can share with a man. Thankfully, Dr. Bird does not try to argue here that when Jesus says, Ego eimi, I am, he's using the divine name, claiming to be God himself. No, obviously he's not. In Dr. Bird's view, and I think he's right about this, The charge of blasphemy just comes from his claim that he's going to be seated at the right hand of the power. These priests, etc., do not think that he's God's Messiah. They think he's a pretender, a usurper, you could say, somebody who's inviting himself up to God's throne, which of course he isn't, but that's what they think. That could satisfy a loose definition of blasphemy. Dr. Bird says a bunch of somewhat relevant things here, but Basically, he just seems to think that being seated at the right hand of the power, he just seems to think that this is something that only a divine being could enjoy. In other words, it would be impossible for God to elevate a mere man to such a position. I don't see why anyone should think that. In fact, this and the book of Acts and other parts of the New Testament seem to provide a counterexample to that. Another example would be the Jesus of Revelation, who says multiple times that the Father is his God. This is a man. This is somebody who has a God. And yet there he is, elevated to reign with God in chapter 5 and thereafter. What we have in this section really, I think, just amounts to unsupported and unsupportable claims that, hey, no way could a mere man have this authority or be put in this position Well, I don't think Dr. Bird has come anywhere close to showing that. 
Okay, so here's his summary. And he does mention one or two points that I skipped. I'll comment on it as we go through. To come to a conclusion on Mark's divine Christology, we saw earlier that there is good evidence that the Mark and Jesus should be regarded as the pre-existent son on account of the acclamation of the demons who recognize him as the son of God, Mark 124, 5-7. What? <laughs> That's an interesting claim. I mean, is the presupposition that Jesus and his pre-human existence is like hobnobbing with the demons somehow? And so like, oh, I remember that guy. How do the demons have their special knowledge of his identity as the son of God, as, as God's Messiah? I don't know. I don't think the text tells us, and I don't know why you would assume that this requires pre-existence either. Dr. Bird continues, and that he transcends the heaven-earth divide as the son of man and son of God. He knows Moses and Elijah from a previous time and place. Wow, as if it said that. And scripture records Yahweh addressing the Messiah as David's pre-existent Lord, as if that weren't a prophecy. In addition, it has been shown that, one, Mark's emphasis on monotheism includes the ambiguous identification of both God and Jesus as Israel's kurios. Mm-mm, sorry. Two, the Mark and Jesus exercises divine prerogatives in forgiving people of their sins. Not according to this book. Three, Jesus' walking on the water and transfiguration contain theophanic qualities that make Jesus a virtual appearance of Yahweh. Wow, it would have made sense for the author to indicate that for us in some manner, wouldn't it, if that had been his point? And four, Jesus has divine authority as he is described not only as a member of the heavenly council, not really, but as one enthroned as Yahweh's vice-regent. Yes, he is that, but why can't a man be that? On the whole, as Timothy Geddert has put it, the mark in Jesus is what only God can be, does what only God can do, and claims the allegiance that belongs only to the one true God. This guy that he just quoted, by the way, Dr. Timothy Geddert, is somebody who just embraces that he's offering an interpretation of Mark on which there is a surface message and a secret implied message. His article is entitled, The Implied Yahweh Christology of Mark's Gospel, Mark's Challenge to the Readers to Connect the Dots. I'll come back to the esoteric or occult literature theme in a minute. Here's how Dr. Berg finishes his conclusion. To synthesize the material surveyed above, we could proffer the following. The Mark in Jesus participates in the curiocentricity of Israel's God. <laughs> curiocentricity. Alrighty. He is identified as a pre-existent heavenly figure who has come to earth, who carries divine authority, who embodies a royal role, and in his person, words, and deeds, he manifests the holy presence, the redemptive purposes, and the cosmic power of the Lord of Israel. In no case can Mark's gospel, when read in light of its own context, claims, and intertextuality, be said to describe Jesus as a human figure, in other words, a mere man, who becomes the divine son at some point in his career, right, as an adoptionist would want to say. I cannot put it any better than boring, quote, it is unmarked to claim that Mark presents us with a human being, Jesus, who in the course of time is promoted to a higher ontological level, whether this be conceived as having happened at his baptism or at the resurrection slash exaltation. I know the purpose of the book, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's to refute claims that the earliest Christology was adoptionist. That's not a thesis that I think anyone should defend. So I think adoptionism is kind of a red herring when it comes to the question of whether or not this book presents Jesus as a man who's not also God, or not also someone with the divine nature, uh, someone belonging to the identity of God, etc. That's what a Christ is. That's what a Christ was expected to be, a man. The portrayal of Jesus here is the portrayal of a man, a very special and unique man to be sure. A great prophet and someone who's really greater than any previous prophet. Someone with amazing authority who makes amazing claims and does amazing miracles. Someone who is destined to be even David's Lord. God? 
No way. And as I mentioned before, I think that Dr. Bird should agree with Dr. Geddert and just embrace that he's offering a two-message reading of Mark. Because the very clear and explicit and repeated, indeed hammered, message of the book is that Jesus is God's Christ, and the term Christ or Messiah doesn't imply being divine. Now, for someone who thinks that the be-all, end-all of Christianity is that Jesus is divine in the way the one God is divine, that would be a massive understatement. And moreover, that wouldn't be the main thesis of someone who thought that Jesus is God. What Dr. Bird does is he says, there's a code here. The code consists of how the word Lord is used and how prophecies about Jesus are employed, and about how certain events are described in a way so as to remind the very literate reader of features of Old Testament passages. And so, really, there's that explicit, clear message. But I think what Dr. Bird's view is that, yeah, but there's this equally clear, implicit message that Jesus belongs to the divine identity, or as others would put it, just Jesus is God, or Jesus has the divine nature. My question for him then, and I haven't seen anything from him that would tell me his answer to this, maybe I'm missing something, but my question for him is, why on earth would the author of this gospel write an esoteric book where people just hearing it for the first time would get one message but actually, the more important message is encoded, and really it requires the clever scholar to come along and sort of piece together using their memory of various Old Testament facts. If Mark thinks that Jesus is the God of Israel, why not just say it? Why not just say that he's always existed? Why not just say that he created the world? Why not just say that it was he who sent the prophets of Old Testament times? It was he who revealed the law to Moses and things like that. Why would he fool around with people like this? It seems to me that if he's trying to clearly proclaim that Jesus is divine in the way the one God is divine, if that's his goal, then he's failed because it's not clear. But again... Why would he game around with people like this? Why would he make it very possible for an interested, sincere reader to sit down, just read the whole book, or listen to it being read, and come away with, well, okay, I got the point of that. It's that Jesus is God's Christ, his anointed one, his human Messiah. Why would he do that? Why would he hide the more important point that Jesus is God? I don't think he would. I think there's a lot of parallelomania going on in this type of reading. If you're a Trinitarian, I think what you have to say about this book is, well, when it comes to the deity of Christ, Mark just doesn't get it for some reason. Maybe you think Paul and John get it. Synoptics? No way. They don't present Jesus as God. They don't present him as being divine in the way the one God is divine. Not a happy thesis. Why would Paul know about this in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and Mark comes along maybe in that time, maybe a bit later, and just blows it like this? Well, arguments about Paul and John, those are for another day. At any rate, I'd be very interested to hear Dr. Bird's answer to this charge, that he presents us with a secret Mark, a murmuring, hinting Mark, a Mark who writes a piece of esoteric literature which has a surface meaning for the crowd, a surface meaning that anyone can grasp, but an encoded, more controversial meaning that only the learned can supposedly discern. Does he embrace that consequence, like Dr. Geddert, or does he deny it, just because it's so darn clear? That's what I'd like to know. This week's thinking music is the track Tree Tenants by Revolution Void. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track.
If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.